From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President Sophia Thomas. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As nurse practitioners, we provide high-quality patient-centered health care for diverse communities. Each of our patients is so unique, and as AANP continues its focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's really important that we understand that a large part of DEI is, at its true heart, a healthcare issue. That's why we're making it a pillar of our association's culture, because it's a critical element in helping NPs across the nation provide the best possible care to our patients. June is National Pride Month, and as we reflect, there are many things that we as healthcare providers really need to know and need to think about when it comes to serving all of our patients. So how do we receive patients in our practice who are part of the LGBTQIA community? How do we speak with them and how do we understand their unique needs? What do all of the letters in the acronym even mean? To offer some insight and to help us unpack the ways in which we can best serve our patients who are part of this community, it's my pleasure to welcome my friend and my colleague, nurse practitioner and LGBTQIA plus ally, Dr. Vanessa Pomerico. Welcome to NP Pulse. Thank you so much for having me, Sophia. I'm glad to be here. Well, Vanessa, you know, June is Pride Month, and there it was no better person that I thought that I could invite than to ask you. You are an expert um, in this field, and certainly I think that it's important that NPs need to understand um, that LGBTQIA population, um, there's a lot involved, and I think healthcare providers of a whole have an awareness of this population and the new things, and, and they've heard a lot of ter- terminology, but they, they don't all have a complete understanding of this population. So that's why I wanted to invite you to come on and really help us unpack all the details. Um, so for the first thing is I want you to just introduce yourself to our listeners. I know you and I know what you do, and but certainly I want our listeners to understand. Great. Well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm very passionate about this population of patients. Um, so my name is Dr. Vanessa Pomerico. And I have been a nurse practitioner for 23 years. Doesn't seem like it's possible. I'm also the lead clinician for diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, for the Northeast Medical Group, where I practice. And we have over 144 offices in Connecticut, New York, and Rhode Island. Um, And so my job is to make sure that every single person who works for our our health system um, has been trained on the appropriate and sensitive care of the LGBTQIA plus patient. Um, I'm also the co-chair of the a, first time uh, the AANP Special Interest Group for Equity, Diversion, and Inclusion. So I'm very excited to be able to share any information uh, with nurse practitioners to help it just help ease the transition for patients in the practice and to really help 
my fellow nurse practitioners feel more comfortable taking care of this population. Absolutely. And I, I think we should add you practice as well, right? Yes, I have a, a very I maintain a, a full time practice um, and about 25 percent of my practice is the LGBTQIA plus population, although I, I think that number is changing a little bit and it's growing a little bit more. Um, and I also lecture for a lot of medical schools, nurse practitioner programs and PA programs, uh, not just in Connecticut, but all over the country now. So uh, the yeah. word is getting out and people want information on it, which is really exciting. Absolutely. And you, knowing your expertise, that's why I wanted to have you come on our show. Um, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank um, you. The, the first thing I want to do is there's been so much terminology. There are all kinds of new words that we're hearing right now, um, new acronyms. And I, I think the first thing we need to do is I, I want to ask you to just give us some of the some of the definitions that, that we hear. Um, you know, we've got LGBTQIA, uh, cisgender, non-binary, all this kind of new terms. And so I thought it's important that we understand the terminology first. So can we go through some of that? Oh, sure. So the easiest way to look at that is, you know, originally it used to just be LGBT. And then, you know, little by little, more letters were added um, to the acronym. And so right now it's LGBTQIA+. Um, and I will tell you that Probably every week I learn something new from a patient coming in uh, with a, a new way that they identify. So it's by no means uh, the, the final list, but certainly a place to start. And what before we even get into the different, um, the different names and, and terms, it's important to understand that every person, every population that's represented under the LGBTQIA plus acronym, uh, they all have different healthcare needs. So it's not a one size fits all. For, L, that for anybody who identifies under LGBTQIA. Yeah. So just starting with the beginning of, of the um, acronym, you know, L is for lesbian. And those are women who are romantically, physically, and emotionally attracted to other women. Uh, the G stands for gay, and it's okay to use the word gay in the appropriate um, context. And those are men who are romantically, physically, and emotionally attracted to other men. Um, B is for bisexual, and uh, sadly, it's, it's the, the population under the entire acronym that probably has the least amount of research that's being done on it. But those um, bisexual, people who identify as bisexual, is someone who is emotionally and or sexually attracted to both men and women. Um, and we have to remember that, you know, people experience attraction or they are, um, you know, sexually attracted to people that are not just binary, binary meaning male or female, masculine or feminine. Then the T is for transgender. Um, and transgender is an adjective. And I, I, I like to drive that point home because we don't say somebody is transgendered, um, but they, somebody who identifies as transgender is someone who, um, whose self-identification doesn't necessarily correspond with the gender that they were assigned at birth. And then the Q is for queer. Now, I know that there are a lot of people, myself included, you know, Q was a, the, the word queer was a derogatory term for a lot of years. It was. And it wasn't something that we ever really used. But when patients identify as queer, it's different than using it as a slur. And it should, the, the term queer should never be used as a slur against another person. So it's okay if somebody identifies as queer, but you shouldn't, ref, you know, refer to somebody in a derogatory nature by using queer. Um, the Q also means questioning. So there are some people who are unsure of their sexual orientation or perhaps their gender identity. Um, and they're they're kind of in that process of 
um, exploring, exploring and um, figuring out what their respective sexual orientation um, or and or their, their gender identity might be. So the Q is for intersex. Um, intersex is, is pretty rare. Uh, the derogatory term for intersex was, was hermaphrodite, and we don't use that term anymore. Um, and and it, again, it is considered derogatory. But a person who is born intersex is somebody who is born with both sets of both male and female genitalia. Um, and they have something that's called a mosaics genetics. Um, it's incredibly rare. It's like 0.05% to about 1.7%, which is about the same percentage as somebody who was born with red hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have um, the A, and A can stand for a couple of different things. So the A is agender, asexual, or it also stands for ally. Um, so somebody who's asexual is really somebody who doesn't have any sexual attraction to another person, but they can be emotionally attracted to somebody else. Um, and then agender is somebody who just does not identify with one gender in particular. And then, of course, ally is somebody like myself who... Um, you know, I, I I support the LGBTQIA population and ally is anybody who really does stand as in support of anybody within the, the acronym there. And then we have the plus, which is sometimes the plus sign. Sometimes you'll see a P um, and that could be for pansexual. And someone who identifies as pansexual is um, somebody who's attracted to anybody, regardless of what their that per other person's gender identity is. And then the only other the only other term that you may hear a lot of, and it's becoming a little bit more popular um, or, or more common now, is something that's called two spirit. So two spirit is is traditionally um, you know Native American people, two spirit people. Um, they were you know male and female, and sometimes intersex individuals who combine their activities of both male and female um, or male and female traits. So in most of the Native American tribes, they weren't considered just men or just women, but they, they have what they call a unique gender status. Um, so it's just, it's always good if somebody identifies as two-spirit that you understand what that's coming from, especially if there's any nurse practitioners who happen to practice in an area where they might see more people from the Native American population. So for instance, in Connecticut, we have two casinos and the casinos are the Mashantucket Pequots. So the nurse practitioners in that particular area, they may end up seeing somebody who identifies as two-spirit because of the healthcare that they provide in that particular area. Absolutely, so that, that's a lot right there. Now we're hearing words like non-binary and cisgender, and can you explain those? So non-binary is somebody who doesn't really identify as just male or female. Um, so it, it's pretty, pretty, self you know self um, explanatory there binary is is really how we traditionally look at masculine or feminine um, male or female it's really a fixed classification of two genders um, and it's really based on the the gender that was assigned at birth you know, we can also have people who identify as androgynous and that's somebody who really presents themselves in in rather an ambiguous gender expression um, so they might not appear male or female. They might be something that's really kind of in between. Um, gender queer is another term that we hear. Um, and that's somebody who doesn't identify, you know, completely as male or female. And that's somebody who might, you know, change their genders often. Um, and the other term would be gender nonconforming. Um, so gender nonconforming is, is sometimes it's um, abbreviated as GNC. And that's a person whose gender expression is really different than what we expect from the cultural norms of being masculine or feminine or male or female. 
Um, and then cisgender is certainly a word that a lot more people are starting to identify with. Um, and it's really just a term to de describe someone who is not transgender. It, it really comes from the Latin um, prefix, meaning on the same side as. So, Okay, so cisgender is somebody who was born, for example, a female, and they identify as a female. Correct, correct. Okay. And one of the, so if, if you don't mind, I'd like to, to maybe throw out a couple of um, terms that are considered derogatory, and we really Absolutely. should not use them, and they should be really dropped from our vocabulary, if you will. Absolutely. Um, so the term transsexual, now that this this term still pervades the literature, and in some of the professional associations, especially like WPATH. WPATH is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And they're the ones that set forth all of the um, the guidelines and um, that we use for those of us who treat the transgender community. And so they still have it in there because in Europe, the term transsexual is not considered derogatory. But here in the United States, it's, it's a, a term that it's outdated and the community really doesn't want it to be used. Um, and one of the offshoots of transsexual is tranny. And that also is a very derogatory term. And if you want to lose your patient, uh, trust me, use the term tranny or transsexual. You'll never see that patient again. Um, and homosexual. So homosexual is a word that we don't use. Um, the, the community really does find it incredibly um, derogatory and offensive. And the reason being was that this was a term that was aggressively used by the anti-gay extremists that really suggested that gay, gay people are somehow, you know, diseased or psychologically or emotionally disordered. Mm -hmm. So they prefer to use the, the term um, gay, you know, yeah. and they say, call us what we are, like nurse practitioners. Don't call me a mid-level. Don't call me a physician uh -huh. extender. Call me a nurse practitioner. Um, and so instead of calling somebody a homosexual, call them what they are. They're gay. And that's okay because okay you're using it in the right term. And then and the other one is transvestite. Transvestite is... We, we don't use the term transvestite. It's actually considered cross-dresser. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really a person who just likes to dress in women's clothing, obviously a male. Um, but they have no plans on ever altering their gender identity or their, their appearance, other than the fact that they use it more as a sexual fetish or a form of gender expression. Okay. And so let me go ask, you mentioned homosexual. Uh, is the word heterosexual considered uh, appropriate or offensive? So heterosexual is considered appropriate because those of us who are heterosexual, we don't find offense to the term. Okay. Um, but cisgender is one of the terms that's kind of replacing heterosexual. But the anti-gay extremists don't take offense to the term heterosexual. Okay. Um, but the, the community really does find that homosexual is, is very offensive. Okay. And I think, so would you say it's important that patients sometimes have to teach clinicians what it means to... Uh, be uh, LGBTQIA or non-binary, um, the patients are doing a lot of education. Yes, and that's that's such an important point that you bring up, you know, and I always say this, our patients are really at their most vulnerable when they're sick, and they shouldn't have to treat, have to teach a clinician what it means to fall under the LGBTQIA acronym. So that's why it's so important for all of us who are treating patients and anybody that comes in contact with a patient, from the front desk person to the, the, the medical assistant taking their blood pressure to the phlebotomist, to anybody who's going to lay their hands on a patient, everybody needs to truly understand how to speak the language. You don't have to be an expert at it. Just learn how to speak their language. And once you speak their language, you're going to send a message to the patient that they're in a safe place. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so now that you bring this up, I was going to ask you this in a minute, but um, that I'm just going to jump in here. So if I, ha- I have a patient um, that I've been seeing in my office for uh, several years and uh, came recently and uh, she's a female and she came recently and she was uh, dressed very masculine. Um, she looked very different than she used to. Um, and so how would I go about asking my patient um, her gender identity or her sexual preference when I, you know, I, th- I think she's probably um, uh, lesbian, but I'm not sure. So how, how would I address that patient? How do I talk to that patient? So, you know, the, the first thing I would say is that if you have any hesitancy at all in caring for somebody of this population, and if you have any, you know, people have their own personal beliefs, they have religious beliefs, and whatever your beliefs are, if for some reason you don't or can't accept this particular um, person's how they identify, whether it's their sexual orientation or their gender identity, then I would strongly suggest that you have somebody else in your practice take care of that patient um, because your patient will pick up on it immediately. Mm -hmm. But if you have a patient who comes in and is starting to change their appearance, you know, you don't really have to say anything at that point. But what we should be asking every single patient, not just the ones who we think might appear to be non-binary, but we should be asking every patient what their preferred or chosen pronoun is. And that this is this is uh, something that we've been doing in our health system, although not every office is doing it yet, but we're trying to get there. Um, but this is something that everybody from the five-year-old to the 85-year-old should be asking, what is your preferred or chosen pronoun? And what we started doing is even on our Zoom calls, we have, we're asking people to now put their preferred pronouns or chosen pronouns next to their name. So on a Zoom call, you have that up there. When I introduce myself to a new patient, I say, hi, I'm Vanessa Pomereco, I'm a nurse practitioner, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And so that opens up the door a little bit for that conversation. Mm-hmm. So if your patient comes in and it's somebody that you've had a relationship with them you know, for a long time, certainly when we're going through our review of systems and we're asking about sexual practices and whether or not we need to screen them for sexually transmitted infections, you know, as part of the history taking, we, we then ask those questions, you know, how, you know, who they're having sex with. Do, do we need to talk about, you know, sexually transmitted infection screenings? Do we need to talk about barrier protections? Do we need to talk about birth control? Um, and then there should be a place for what we call SOGI, which is sexual orientation and gender identity. Most of the um, electronic health records have the SOGI information in there. And if they don't, you know, please advocate to get it in there because our patients can fill out a lot of that information before they come in. And for some of them, it will it will help them not to have an uncomfortable conversation if they're nervous or anxious about having that with their clinician. Um, and then it's something that the clinician can just see there on the intake form and then just direct the conversation. You're not asking them how they have sex. You're asking them, what what can I do to help protect you from the typical things, just like we ask any other patient. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, let's talk about the questions that you need to ask, the questions you want to ask, Um, you know, specifically, you talked about it a little bit more um, with the SOGI and and things like that. Um, Again, what are some words that we can say, um, words of comfort? How do we make it a welcoming environment for patients um, as they come to our offices? So there's a lot of different ways that you can create what we call a welcoming environment. You know, so one of the things that I always 
you know, say to people is that, you know, the rainbow is considered the universal sign of acceptance for the LGBTQIA population. As we know, Pride Month, we see rainbows everywhere. Um, but, you know, don't put up a rainbow, you know, decal on your door. Don't wear a lapel pin that has a rainbow on it if you if you truly don't understand what that means behind that, because our patients will see that they'll think that perhaps, you know, this person, you know, speaking my language and then the, the clinician opens up their mouth and then the patient realizes, oh, they're just wearing a rainbow because it's pretty and mm-hmm. they're not wearing a rainbow because of what it really truly means to this population. So one of the things that we do is when anybody goes through the training with me um, or you know, one of my counterparts, we now, because our offices are, we've gotten so many, we've actually had other training teams um, that are now kind of going out and we did the train the trainer kind of thing. So what we do is when people go through the training, then we say to them, once you've done this, here's your lapel pin, you know, here's a rainbow decal that you can put in the window. And so it's just subtle, but as the patients open up the door to my office or one of the other offices, they just see, like I have one from the Welcoming Project, which is a nonprofit, and you make a donation and they send you a bunch of decals for your window. And so it's just a, a, a subtle sign for the patients when they come in, but also to the person at the front desk welcoming them and saying, you know, what is your preferred cho- or your chosen name and pronoun? And, and that kind of sets the tone um, for the patient experience at that point. You know, in terms of your um, your intake forms, you want to make sure that you're you're not you don't just use binary gender terms like male and female. So on the intake forms, you want to add transgender, gender neutral, non-binary, gender non-conforming, so that there's a place for the patient to put in there how they self-identify. Um, and then again, that's something that can be put in the electronic health record. You know, as far as clinicians are concerned, really focusing on the patient's main complaints. So if they're there for a rash, it's not the time to ask them if they're planning on having surgery or starting hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really important that we keep it to the patient complaint. Um, You know, thinking about providing education for all of the staff. And if there's nobody within your health system, certainly there are people like us out in the community that we do a tremendous amount of education within different medical offices and health systems and schools and universities um, so we can get people out there because we want it, We want people to get trained. We want people to be educated so that it's not just within the medical community, but that has the ripple effect. Um, because if one person has been educated and say a new person gets hired into the office and the new person inadvertently says something that is considered derogatory or offensive, then the the ripple effect is somebody else in the office who's been educated will say, you know, listen, that really wasn't appropriate what you said about that patient. Let's have a conversation about it. And mm-hmm. so we start to raise the awareness of all of that, um, you know, simply by speaking the patient's language, you know, using appropriate terminology and references, something as simple as saying what your preferred or chosen pronouns are um, is certainly very, very helpful. And then one of the other things that is really helpful, especially for um, patients who are coming in and and if they've had a negative experience in the medical community, is just asking the patient before you do the exam, if there's any, um, any word that we use to describe the human body that they find offensive. So, you know, for all of us, we can sit around the dinner table and, you know, for those of us who all are in the same profession and we can talk about body fluids and, oh. you know, all kinds of things. And we don't think twice about and it. And eat dessert right after. Exactly. Right. 
doesn't, you know, my he- my husband's head would be in a bucket somewhere. Um, but but saying to the patient, you know, we can use the word vagina and penis, but for some of those patients who have gender dysphoria, where they have that disconnect between how they identify and the body that they were born with, um, using the term breasts or vagina or penis can be very triggering for them. So before I start the exam, I just say to them, before we do anything, are there any anatomical terms that you might find offensive? And if so, just tell me what you prefer I say. And then I just jot jot it down on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And give your patient lots of reassurance. You know, just let them know they're doing well. You know, if you're doing a pelvic exam on somebody and they're really nervous, just, you know, ask them beforehand, do you want me to explain to you everything that I'm doing? And most patients will say yes. Sometimes they'll say no, just get it over with. Um, I I will sometimes have patients bring in headphones. I have them bring in a support person, whatever it's going to be to make it um, an easier process for them. Just offer offer it to them. That's the only thing you can do. And and then they'll get the message that you really are caring and it's it's an office that they want to come back to. Yeah, you want to create a safe space for patients, whoever the patients are. You want them to feel safe in your office, that you want them to feel welcome. And so uh, this community is certainly no different than any other community as far as that goes. Um, Having said that, though, each one of these communities has their own special needs and special challenges. Mm hmm. They certainly do. Can you go through some of the the challenges? I mean, you know, overall, I think this is a very at-risk population. They're higher risk for depression and suicide. Um, And so can you share through your vast experience, what are some of the challenges that these communities go through? So, you know, the biggest challenge, I think, for a lot of our patients um, is that they've had a negative experience in the past. So it, it may be a perceived discrimination or they may have had an actual discrimination and that's preventing them from from seeking health care again. So, it, you know, it's not uncommon for many of my patients to not have been seen by a health care provider for many, many years or many of them have been um, they've been treated so poorly by the medical community that they will only seek care until they are absolutely you know, there's no point there's no turning back and they end up in the emergency room. Um, where they may have, you know, even more of a problem then. So that that real or perceived discrimination really prevents them from seeking the amount of care. Some of them fear being assaulted because they have been assaulted. Some of them have had physical abuse. Um, You know, the other thing is that they have clinicians who are not familiar with taking care of this population. And again, our patients are at their most vulnerable when they're sick. So, you know, if they have a clinician that really doesn't know how to speak the right language or they're fumbling all over themselves, you know, that can put the patient, um, you know, really in a place that's very, very uncomfortable. And again, they shouldn't have to um, teach a clinician about what it's like to be within the LGBTQA population. You know, there is, a, I, I do a lot of um, trainings and speakings with um, Tony Furiolo. And Tony Furiolo is a very well-known um, transgender male who has really spent his life um, taking care of transgender youth and really has given his own transition um, a platform for him to share his experiences and then, you know, train the medical community. And his treatment through a lot of different medical procedures and that kind of thing are pretty well known. He's he's very vocal about it. Um, but when during one of our trainings, we were kind of getting um, getting away. We were talking about a bad experience that he had. Uh, with a clinician that he had seen and we said we we actually came up with the term that you know it's not enough to be trans friendly because anybody could be friendly and be nice to a patient but it's something else to be trans educated 
and mm-hmm. truly understanding, you know, that education. And unfortunately, there's just not a lot of research that's being put toward this population. But also, too, there's just not a lot being taught in the medical schools, in nurse practitioner programs, in PA programs. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, that I always say in terms of a challenge is there's a lot of lack of understanding from even our own colleagues. Um, I unfortunately worked with a physician at one time that said to me, are you going to build the patient twice, once for male and once for me, female? And he thought it was funny. And I had to actually like count to 10 and walk away because I was so incensed that somebody could be that insensitive just yeah. so insensitive and and i i feared for my patients and you know when patients get to to know who you are they panic when you take a vacation oh yeah absolutely so you know that becomes a real you know a real problem is when we don't have anybody who's truly educated um and 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 the patients pick up on that mm-hmm Absolutely. And, you know, that's one thing that we've strived to do with AAMP. Certainly, you have been an excellent speaker for us. And thank you. Uh, we have some of your sessions in our CE Center, and we'll be putting some links in the show notes as well thank uh, you. for more education, um, because I, I think it's so important. As I said in the beginning of the show, healthcare providers have an awareness um, about uh, this community and these communities, but we really overall generally, I think, lack an understanding. And that's why I wanted to have you, um, you know, come on and help us. Now, um, what do you do? I know there are some some more challenges. I mentioned the depression and suicide rates. What are some more, do you have more statistics that you can share? So, you know, just the a recent Gallup poll that was actually done this year, um, is just to give you an idea, about 5.6% of adults in the United States actually identify as as under the LGBTQIA acronym. Um, and this what I found was incredibly interesting was that more than half of the LGBTQIA adults, um, they identify as bisexual. So that was something that I, I actually found um, pretty interesting. So, you know, the problem is, is that our older LGBTQIA um, patients you know, they grew up in an era where that was not something that they talked about and that they had to, it was very hush hush. Um, And so they're really not comfortable coming out and until they're really comfortable with you. Um, And I know that I've had some of my own patients that they've been referred to me and it's taken them a year before they felt comfortable enough to say anything because it was something that was taboo in -hmm. many, many, many religions, many, um, different uh, cultures, and it still remains to be taboo. So, you know, depression and suicide rates are really huge, especially if if patients are not allowed to really live and be their true selves. Um, There's a lot of patients who, you know, they lose their jobs, they lose their families, they're, um, you know, and unfortunately they can't lose their job for being transgender or for transitioning, but, you know, there's always a way that employers can figure out a way to get rid of an employee. So those patients end up having to turn to sex work or street work in order to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result, they end up, you know, having higher rates of sexually transmitted infections, rape, you know, higher rates of suicide and depression, um, or, you know, death by suicide and depression. So it's really important that we screen our patients when we see them for suicide um, ideation, as well as depression, and to also assess who their village is. You know, a lot of times we don't ask those questions, but, you know, there was a time when, you know, patients would come into the hospital and their significant others were not allowed to make decisions for them. It was the next of kin. Mm-hmm. Um, who and who that may not even a, be familiar with them. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, and I'll tell you, for example, I had a patient who identified as lesbian and she came in for surgery. Now she had been married, but wasn't living with her husband, but she had been with this woman for you know a number of years. And it was the soon to be ex-husband that was making all the decisions about who could visit, what the medical decisions were going to be. And here it is, this, this woman's significant other who was truly her wife should have been the one to make those decisions. It was really heartbreaking. Yeah, and we we see those challenges and still see it every every day. But I think, you know, every year, I think there is more and more of an awareness. And it's just a matter of uh, us in healthcare to really get on board and truly educate ourselves and gain an understanding so we can advocate and we can be allies as well. Absolutely. So, so what do we do as, as you know, most nurse practitioners practice in clinics and we're, um, you know, seeing patients of all ages across the healthcare spectrum. And, you know, as you said earlier, patients don't come in with the chief complaint of being uh, transgender or, or uh, gay. They, you know, they come in for their wellness exams. They come in for um, acute, you know, and chronic illnesses. So, when we're having these conversations with them and you mentioned, you know, words to say and not to say, what do we do if we if we make a mistake? So that that's such an important um, point that you bring up. So, you know, our patients are going to come in because they're people, they're humans yeah. they are going to come in with the same problems. Everybody else comes in and it has nothing to do with their sexual orientation and gender identity. But I will tell you, you know, the, the biggest thing that I hear from the community is and this is coming from the community directly, they'll say, you know, please don't follow all over yourself apologizing. So, for example, if I come in and and this has happened before, I have a patient who comes in. You were talking about your patient earlier in the program. You know, you have a patient who comes in and in your brain, you know, your brain cells have looked at this and and it automatically recognizes that your patient, Leslie, for instance, is female. And then Leslie starts making a transition, whether or not you're aware of it. And then the next time Leslie comes in, she may have changed her name and or maybe her pronouns um, and then may go by the, the, the pronoun they. Mm -hmm. But let's say Leslie comes in and she said, Sophia, um, my name, please start calling me Jonathan. And in your brain, it's still Leslie, the female. But, I'm, you know, I'm looking at Jonathan, the male. And just because it, it's, you know, programmed, if you make a mistake, just say, excuse me, Jonathan, and then move on. Don't ask for the don't say I'm sorry. And I know that that um, that's our first instinct is to say I'm sorry. But in the transgender community, they feel that when you say I'm sorry, you're asking they then feel like they have to give you permission to be OK with that. And sometimes they're not OK with it. So just by saying, excuse me, Jonathan, correct yourself, move on and don't make a big deal of it, because the more big deal you make of it the more it's going to stress your patient out and you pro the patient probably won't come back again. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it gets you off the subject of, of why you're in there, you know, in the exactly. first place. So, yeah, I think that's so important. Vanessa, you've provided us with so much information today. I'm going to ask you uh, if you could tell nurse practitioners who are practicing right now, um, taking care of LGBTQIA patients, maybe they, they know or maybe they don't know. Um, uh, what are three things that you could leave us with uh, for practicing NPs today? So, so my top three things would say, speak their language, you know, um, ask preferred name and or chosen or preferred name and pronoun. Um, and if you make a mistake, just move on. 
you know, just starting with those three things will help ease the patient, you know, transition them into your practice. Um, and it's okay to say to them, you know, um, this is, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I know about how to take care of the human body. I'm not very familiar about how to take care of a transgender patient who's having a problem with hormones, but I promise you I can find out. Um, if you, I, I just want to share a story with you about why this became so important to me. 20 years ago, I was in college health, working in college health, and I had gotten a phone call from the counseling center asking me if they could send a patient over to see me. And I said, you know, sure, I was I was providing women's services on, on campus, and it was all the GYN services. So the patient came over, and the patient was clearly male and had a male pronoun. And I realized that this was somebody who was transgender, and, and the counselor said, you know, the patient is transgender. And I was very honest with the patient when I went out to meet them. And I said, listen, I know how to take care of your body. I don't know how to speak your language. And 20 years ago, believe it or not, it doesn't seem like it that's long ago, there was not a lot of research out there. I called everybody I knew in Connecticut to say, I have a transgender patient. Can anybody help me? And nobody knew. It wasn't until I called a former student of mine in San Francisco and said, listen, I know that this is going to sound really bad, but you are in the Mecca of the gay community. And even though transgender people are not necessarily gay, you must know somebody that can help me. And it wasn't until I found UCSF and a doc there was kind enough to get on the phone with me and spoke to me for about 45 minutes and said, whatever you need, just send me you know, an email and I'm happy to help you. And I realized that there was nothing in the literature, there was nothing to help educate anybody else. And that's why I focused my doctoral research on transgender education, because there wasn't anything. Mm -hmm. So the more we educate, the more of a ripple effect we'll have. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today on NP Pulse. It was enlightening. It was a wonderful conversation, as always. I love talking to you. Thank and, you. And I appreciate everything you do to educate nurse practitioners and healthcare providers on this subject. And we're going to be continuing to share this information and, and more. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for understanding the importance of getting this information out there. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Vanessa. That was so informative and all NPs can apply those principles in their lives and in their practice. I want to remind everyone that registration is now open for the AANP 2021 National Conference and that the conference kicks off on June 15th. Be sure you're registered in time to attend the first week's live streaming sessions, including the opening general session featuring keynote speaker Cindy McCain. There are also more than 100 on-demand CE sessions available for you to take part in your own pace over the course of two whole months. I hope to see you in there and chat with you in the conference forum. And please don't forget our keynote speaker, Cindy McCain. She'll be speaking to us about human trafficking. It's going to be an amazing presentation. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm.